So let's take a look at Titus chapter 3. As I was thinking about the text, I was reminded of the incredible device, the Hubble telescope. It was in the 1990s, right? April 24th of 1990, that the Discovery Shuttle launched the Hubble telescope into space 353 miles away from the Earth. It put the Hubble telescope in this unique position where it could look out into distant galaxies light years away and bring those galaxies into focus. The scientists and engineers that were part of this team were just anticipating new discoveries and maybe some validation to hypotheses that they had had about the universe for decades. It was a huge project. It's the biggest telescope of its kind. It is the most accurate telescope of its kind. It cost $1.5 billion to put this device into space. Probably the most striking feature of human logistics and ingenuity of the Hubble telescope was the main mirror. The scientists had created a mirror that was so precise that they were able to grind it down to perfection as humanly possible. The curve did not deviate beyond one eight hundred thousandth of an inch. So if you want to put that into perspective, you blow up that lens to the size of planet Earth, and the largest bump on the telescope lens would be six inches, which is incredible when you think about it. But, you know... Anytime you set up for a project, you realize that things don't always go according to plan. Have you ever run a project where nothing went wrong? I haven't yet. There's always something that you didn't think about, didn't consider, or didn't go the way that you intended. And so when they launched Hubble into space, they realized that there was a flaw in the main mirror. It wasn't bringing objects into crystal clear focus. They were fuzzy. Now think about that with regard to the mission of Hubble. So here you have this powerful telescope, this telescope that is meant to be accurate and bring objects that are light years away into focus, and it can't accomplish its main mission. So what did they do? Well, in December of 1993, they sent another space shuttle, Endeavour, and they equipped this with some astronauts who would have corrective optics to change the mirror. It was a massive success. And now Hubble brings us pictures like this. I mean, isn't it incredible? You, you look at pictures like this and maybe it struck you before, but we are living in a time unparalleled in history where we get innovative new technology like that at our fingertips. It's incredible. I was thinking a lot about Hubble and mission. There's some contrast here, some parallel here. Uh, it doesn't matter how powerful something is, how accurate something is, if it loses focus, it doesn't accomplish the mission that it was intended to do. You know, it, you think about the church, Christians and churches 
I think, would never get up on a Sunday morning and say, we don't want to be transformative for the community. They would never get up on a Sunday morning and say, we're not about making disciples here. We're a place where you're just intended to be comfortable. We got really cushy seats so you can sit here week after week. And and this is just about you and it's therapeutic. We would never get up and say that. Dr. Joe Ellis he said, that this, uh, he said this of the church. He said that the church is God's enterprise. It's God's business. It's how God interfaces with the world. It's his people that do this. But if you were going to look at the current state of the church and put it into business terms, you could easily say that lots of churches across America have lost market share. In fact, a lot of churches across America are heading in a direction where soon they might be putting up a sign at the front door of the church that says going out of business. Why? Well, I think it has something to do with focus again. You see, Paul is telling us a lot about this strategy of becoming a city on a hill Remember Matthew 5.14, that's what Jesus said that the people of God were supposed to be. And, and Paul's setting Titus up to go and lead this church of Crete, to be zealous for good works, to be an unleashed church. And he started off with preaching. He said, you got to get that right. And then leadership. And then we talked about the teaching of the church and how the church is meant to leverage its relationships so that the teaching of the church infiltrates all throughout the church. It permeates the church. We talked about the grace of God. And then we moved from there with readiness. That's the church poised. That's the church, in terms of attitude, ready to go and do good works within the community. But what good is any of that if the church loses focus, if it enters into the space of mission drift. Now ask yourself the question, how do churches tend to lose focus? Well, Paul has a pretty direct answer. He says that churches lose focus because of problem people inside of churches. You ever thought about that? Churches lose focus because of people inside the four walls of the church. Listen to what he says, Titus chapter 3, verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now we come back to the background of this Isle of Crete. Why is Paul sending Titus here? And you'll remember at the beginning, he tells him that there are some false teachers that are disrupting the ministry of the church. And it's quite disruptive. He says in verse 11 that they're upsetting whole families. 
And, and their motives for being false teachers is less than pure. Again, in verse 11, they're teaching for shameful gain. It's Machiavellian, right? They're doing this to get something from people. And when you come to verse 8 and 9 of chapter 3, you'll see their methods. They like to create controversies. They like to appear superior by creating debates over minutia. You'll notice that he talks about genealogies, so that squabbles over people's family backgrounds, and I came from this lineage, and that's why I'm most important. You'll also see that there's dissensions and quarrels about the law, so they get pedantic with the law of God, and, and they make something really small within the law of God most important. They elevate it to that space. Now, I've been doing ministry for 15 years now, I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy to think about it. I just don't feel that old at this point. But 15 years, some of you are like, you're still a young buck, wet behind the ears. But I feel like that's enough time to have made some observations, wouldn't you say? And I would say this anecdotally, from my experience, I have not observed church splits and church controversies at this point that revolve around genealogies and quarrels about the law. Anybody experienced that yet in their church experience? Not me, I haven't. So I'm suggesting this morning that that may be something specific to Paul's time. Now, <laughs> I have experienced problem people in churches. In fact, I would say it's probably axiomatic to say that every church probably has at least one problem person within it. I read a book by Marshall Shelley, and he talks about these problem people. He calls these people, I like that, well-intentioned dragons. You get this? Well-intentioned they have good intentions. They, 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 they care about things. But they're dragons. And anytime you have a dragon running loose in a village, well, it kind of does destructive things in the village. Shelley describes these dragons this way. He says, the distinguishing characteristic of a dragon is not what is said, but how it is said. Even though dragons are well-intentioned, sincerely doing what's best in their own eyes, the characteristic that marks a dragon is that they are never quite with you. Often, they have a spirit that enjoys adversary rather than being an ally. They have a consistent pattern of focusing on a narrow, specific, uh, special interest rather than the big picture, which leads then to following tangents rather than pursuing balanced church life. They persistently shift the church off focus. You know, the interesting thing about these dragons is they could be running roughshod through the church and no one really notices it. It's something that is usually more felt than openly seen. For example, let's get really intangible here. Dragons have a way of destroying morale and enthusiasm. 
right? And those intangible qualities are actually really important when it comes to church growth and church health. For example, if you don't feel enthusiastic about your church, are you going to invite anyone to your church? No. So when dragons are running around behind the scenes of the church, you feel it in these ways. You no longer feel so good about the church. The air feels tense. The church gets depressed. And instead of the church being that key value for us, family, one Sunday you show up to church and all of a sudden it feels like there is an us and there is a them. Dragon warfare, the first casualty in this warfare, our vision and initiative. And then the next victim is outreach. So think about that. How is the church supposed to become zealous for good works and accomplish the mission if it doesn't have vision, initiative, and outreach? That's why in this text, Paul's saying to Titus, we've got to deal with dragons. There are dragons, they enter into the four walls of the church, and if it goes unaddressed, it's going to take the church off focus. Now, I want to give you a couple of tangible examples of dragons operating in churches. I'm not going to share any personal examples this morning. I've done most of my ministry in this church, and I don't want to send people off in thought bubbles like, I wonder who he's talking about. I used to know so-and-so. Ha, 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 ha. And besides, you guys have been perfect the entire time I've been here. <laughs> so I'm going to share different examples of this. One example is a pastor who teaches seminary courses in Minnesota, and he got his group of students together, and they're all involved in churches, and they're learning about ministry, and the pastor tells them, listen, I want you to draw the organizational structure of the church, the leadership structure, and so the students, they sit down, and they start drawing their boxes, and here's the committees, and here's the boards, and these are the key leadership positions, and then they start drawing their lines on the charts, making their charts. And this is a wise pastor, and this is a practical theology course. And so he says, that's great. You guys have drawn some really good organizational structures. Now, I want you to draw the picture of how the decisions are actually made at your church. And so one of the students submits a picture, and the picture has a bunch of little tiny bubbles and there's some committees and boards in those tiny bubbles and then there's a giant egg in the middle of the picture and all of the lines are pointing towards the egg and the egg is labeled Ralph. Ralph! Now I know some of you have been in organizations, whether it's in a church or in a business or some other kind of organization where there has been a Ralph. How do Ralphs happen in churches? Well, I want to suggest that Ralphs rise up in churches when the leadership structure of the church is blurry and confused. That's why in Titus chapter two, 1 and 2, Paul talks so much about creating structure. In Titus 1, for example, he talks about eldership. And that's so essential for the church. 
Well, let's talk another story, Pastor Tyler. You see, Pastor Tyler was surprised when he didn't receive his paycheck on the day that he was supposed to receive his paycheck. So he thinks, oh, okay, something's happened. There must be some kind of mistake. I'll just wait a couple of days and it'll correct. And three days, four days goes by. He starts getting a little nervous. I mean, he needs his paycheck to live on. So he calls the treasurer, Dwayne. He says, Dwayne, great to hear from you. I'd love, uh, I just wanted to let you know that I haven't received my paycheck. And then he kind of quips with them. He's like, you know, I've got mouths to feed at home. And Dwayne, very matter-of-factly, says to Pastor Tyler, well, that's because you didn't preach at our church last Sunday, so I decided you don't deserve a paycheck. Now, Pastor Tyler's shocked. He's like, Dwayne, what do you mean you're not going to send me my paycheck? When I first came here and and applied for this position, I told the elders at the front end that I want to be outside the church some and minister outside the church because it's an extension of the church's ministry. Well, Dwayne says, I don't care what you said. If you're somewhere else, that somewhere else can pay you. Conversation over. Now think about this whole dynamic. Think about poor Pastor Tyler and living on pins and needles and in this highly controversial decision. Think about the meeting that occurs between Pastor Tyler and the chairman of the board and the treasurer now turned dictator, Dwayne. All of that energy wrapped up in something that has nothing to do with the church's primary mission. And this particular situation is only resolved when the chairman of the elders looks Dwayne in the eyes and says, Dwayne, pay the man his paycheck. Now, do you see what I'm talking about here with dragons? Dwayne's and Ralph's, they can fly under the radars. In fact, Dwayne and Ralph don't know that they're Dwayne and Ralph. As they think about themselves, they view themselves as a godly person. They love the church. They love the Bible. They love doing things in the name of Jesus. And and when Dwayne and Ralph are functioning on Sunday mornings, most people perceive them in the congregation as gentle and kind. Why? Because Dwayne and Ralph are out glad-handing everyone. Good morning. God bless you. Love you, sister. You're such a great person. But intangibly... Behind the scenes, there's a lot of destructive activity that's taking the church off focus. How how do you become a dragon? It's not intentional. No one ever walked into a church and says, "Ah, I really want to stir up a lot of trouble. That's my goal. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago that inside each one of us lives a duality. We can be Dr. Jekyll and we can be Mr. Hyde, both at the same time. If in each one of us there's this this odd combination of a self-sacrificing saint and a self-serving sinner. Now, here's what I've come to believe. I believe that we're either growing in one of two directions. We're either growing to become a more mature disciple or we're not. And whichever side I feed, that's what I am becoming. Now, 
not everyone that doesn't feed the disciple becomes a dragon, but dragons certainly emerge out of people that are not feeding the disciple. How do I become a mature disciple? Maybe this is the first time you'll hear something like this, but Howard Hendricks describes discipleship like this. He says, we begin to grow when we take responsibility for the growth of another person. You could sit in church a long time and never hear of spiritual growth framed that way. Often, when you talk about spiritual growth in church contexts, it's kind of like show up to the sermons and listen to the pastor preach and have your personal devotional life and show up to the Bible studies. It's a didactic, educational-focused kind of spiritual growth. And what can happen is we fall under the assumption with a model like that, that given enough time and given enough truth, people will just become mature in Christ. But in my experience, that's not true. Why? Because there's a difference between learning and growing, just like there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Let me give you a little example of that this morning. I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you know, say, know, that you should create a budget and follow it to avoid making poor decisions with your finances? Let's raise our hands if you know that. Okay? So just about every hand in the room, and maybe a couple of rebels that didn't want to raise their hand, but I think 99% of us would say, I know that. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand for the second question that I'm about to ask, because I don't want to embarrass anyone this morning. But listen to this second question. How many of you create a budget and follow it to avoid making poor decisions with your money? Oh, boy. If we were anywhere near the national average, one in three hands of the room would be raised when it comes to the second question. There's a lot of stuff we know. We know how to eat healthy and stay healthy. We know that exercise is good for us. We know that we should be involved in fellowship with churches. We know these things. But growth happens when we apply learning. Growth is maximally achieved when we pour our lives into the life of another person. Yet many Christians stall for some reason. They never take this next step of growth. They focus mostly on their own growth instead of helping others grow. You know what happens when we do that? we become ingrown. Think about your toenail for just a minute this morning. I know you love that thought. That bad boy was meant to grow outward and free. You want unrestricted outward growth when it comes to your toenail. Now what happens when your toenail does this and turns sideways with its growth? Ouch, right? It becomes painful. You never think about your toenail, but when it does this, you start thinking about your toenail a lot. And I want to suggest this morning that your soul is meant to do the same thing. 
It's meant to grow outward and be free. And when it turns inward, it becomes a source of frustration and pain for the believer. You become ingrown. Now, if I've become ingrown, think about the way that it might affect the way I relate to the church and its ministry. I think there are three ways in my experience that people relate to the church and its ministry. The first way some people relate is indifference. I'm not invested. I'm okay. I'm not trying to destroy the church or anything like that. But I kind of have this transactional relationship with it. If it's meeting my needs and if the chairs are cushy and comfy, then okay, that's great. But the second that that stops happening, I'm just as happy to go find a different place to meet my needs. And that's indifference, right? I'm indifferent about the mission of that church. Now, don't hear me saying anytime you leave a church that you're indifferent. That's not what I'm saying this morning. But there is a predominant attitude in American Christianity that is indifferent right now. The second is ownership. Ownership's great. I'm very much a part of this. I love the mission of the church. I want to be a part of the mission of the church. I'm willing to expend my time and resources and energies, and I don't always have to have it my way because I want this to succeed. I'm a team player with this. The third is ownership that's gone wrong. It's possessiveness. I feel extreme ownership. This is my church. My chair has my name on it. That's where I sit every week. You don't sit in my chair. This is mine. I control it. Now, healthy Christians relate with ownership. Ingrown Christians relate either with indifference or possessiveness. And I want to suggest that dragons are always possessive. They're trying to control the church. And I've noticed that this possessiveness can breed various kinds of dragons. So we're going to go on a little bit of a mythical journey this morning and explore various kinds of dragons that can emerge in churches. I'm going to start with the pastor because I've been a little bit hard on congregants with some of my stories. So we've got to understand that there can also become pastor dragons in churches. These are the types of pastors that want to rule with an iron fist that say, I'm in control. Everyone in the church does what I say within the church. They're not doing Ephesians chapter 4, equipping the saints for the works of the ministry. And the pastor dragon ends up bottlenecking the church. The church can't grow beyond this single individual. I have also seen other kinds of dragons. There's the days gone by dragon. Now this dragon just loves to reminisce on the past and how much better things used to be 20 years ago than they presently are today. And I think this dragon would do well to exercise the spiritual gift of presently serving instead of the spiritual gift of remembering what was better. There's also the ideas dragon. Now, the ideas dragon has lots of good ideas. 
And they love to take those ideas and dump them on someone else and tell that person, you're responsible for executing my idea. You know how you slay an ideas dragon? You hand them the spear of personal responsibility. You say to this dragon, well, here's a thought. Why don't you do something about that? And all of a sudden, their idea fizzles. Thank you. That was helpful. Now, listen, I'm being a little playful this morning. Um, There are a million scenarios where it's good to remember things that happened 20 years ago. And of course, there are ideas that should be shared in the church. And you're not being a days gone by dragon or an ideas dragon if you engage in those things. You are, though, when those things become devices to get your way or to be cynical or to control the church. There are other dragons. There's the major on the minors dragon. Now this dragon likes to create debates over minor doctrinal points as though they are major truth in the life of faith. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about these dragons and he's talking to pastors here. He says, do not make minor doctrines main points. Do not paint the details of the background of the gospel picture with the same heavy brush as the great objects in the foreground of it. For instance, the great problems of sublapsarianism and supralapsarianism, and some of you are like, what in the world is he talking about right now? And I actually had to go back and review those terms because I hadn't heard them since seminary. He continues, and the pre- and post-millenarian scheme, however important some may deem them, are practically of very little concern to the godly widow woman with seven children. If you preach to her of the faithfulness of God to his people, she will be cheered and helped in the battle of life, but difficult questions will perplex her and send her to sleep. There's other dragons, of course. You have the outsized expectations dragon. They want quality to be up here, but they're willing to do about this much to help get to that quality. Uh, I just came up with this one this morning. You have the politics dragon. You have the legalist dragon. You have the pessimistic dragon. It could be a beautiful, sunny Cape Cod day, and the only concern this dragon has is that there's not enough shade on this day. There's all kinds of dragons. Now these dragons are well-intentioned dragons. They're not setting out to be destructive, but they are because of their attitude and their behavior. But Paul says there's also ill-intentioned dragons. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. He says, for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, Paul's not saying that Christians will never disagree on matters. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 15, 
Barnabas and Paul have a very significant dispute over whether John Mark ought to go on a missionary journey with them, and they end up dividing over that dispute. So sometimes good people will see the same situation differently. But having said that, there is a form of dissension that is toxic and destructive. Paul calls this person a divisive person. They just seem to thrive on controversy. They're arguing not because they love the truth, but because they love to win. They're instigators, manipulators. And Paul reminds us in a compressed way that this person, this type of person, should be taken through the process of church discipline. Why? Why should the church exercise discipline? Well, this person could destroy the mission of the church. I heard a quote recently that helped me put all of this in perspective. The quote just says, no job is more important than the person. And sometimes you'll see dynamics where people destroy the, the significance of another person, the self-worth of another person, because their perfectionistic tendencies with a job or something of that nature, uh, they use it like weapons towards that person. That's not good, of course. People are more important than jobs, right? We can all agree with that. But on the other side of the quote, no person is more important than the mission. So anytime you elevate a person above the mission, you really do damage to the purpose of an organization, or in our case, the church, what we are called to do. Anytime the church exercises discipline, it's because no person is more important than the mission of the church. So let me ask a question. We want to create focus. And if I want to create focus in a church, I need to ask myself, well, how do I avoid becoming a dragon? And I think you can anticipate the answer to this question. You have to stay focused. You have to grow outwardly. Listen to what Paul says in verse 8. He says, this saying is trustworthy. Now, what saying is he saying there in Titus 3.8? He's talking about the verses that came before, verses 4 through 7, where he's sharing that precious gospel truth, the grace potential of a person. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So dramatic spiritual growth happens when we choose to become externally focused as a Christian. That's when I say as a believer, it's not about me. It was never about me. It's about abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ and fulfilling his mission. Externally focused churches, they do these types of activities. They, number one, preach the gospel. Number two, they appropriate God's grace. They don't just learn, they grow. And then number three, they seek to extend that grace to others. Now, I want to show you a graph that I think has become just a personal conviction to me on what growth looks like in a Christian's life. Maybe you don't think in terms of graphs. I'll explain this a little bit for you. 
If you look at the left side of the graph, the y-axis, you have more time being spent in personal development versus ministry to others. If you look at the, uh, the, the x-axis of the graph, you have a person who's less mature versus someone who's more mature. Now, I want you to notice the line of this graph that as a person is heading towards more maturity, their focus in time shifts from personal development towards ministering to others. Do you see that? Wag your head if this is kind of making sense. Okay, thank you. Now, personal development for a less mature Christian is really important. After all, you can't give away what you don't have. So you need to spend time in the Word. You need someone else to minister to you, to disciple you, to walk you through the great truths of Scripture and, and how you become externally focused towards others. That person should still be doing ministry. I'm not saying that they're not. But more of their time is spent where? Personal development. But as a person becomes more mature, they need to shift the focus. They need to become others-centric. What happens if I don't do that in my growth journey? Well, then I become ingrown, stale, rotten, sour, rancid. We are growing more mature as we concern ourselves with ministry to others. The more we appropriate this beautiful gospel message, and the more that we see that it's about desiring to serve and ministering and investing our time and energy in growing others, it's a natural Christian progression. And if we don't head in that direction, it's a big problem. So how does Jesus slay the dragon in us? Well, Jesus slays it by enlarging your heart towards his desires and his purposes. I love this quote. This pastor says, everything is in service to this, expanding the size of our hearts. People, I love this, with small brains and big hearts can accomplish great things. That's so true. It doesn't matter with what talents or abilities you were born with. Any Christian can grow their heart towards the things of God and do great things. Think about Zacchaeus, for example. What was his heart like before he met Jesus? Well, this is this like dull, small, shrimpy, greedy little heart. It was all about him. But then he has this grace encounter with Jesus. And in that grace, he realizes his true potential and his heart like the Grinch and the Grinch who stole Christmas. It starts enlarging. And he moves from a thief to a philanthropist. You know, the most important question you can ask yourself is this. How has my heart grown towards the things of God in the past 12 months? How has your heart grown? Are your arms open? Are they growing wider towards others or are they wrapping more around yourself? Do you have room for others? Or is there only room for you and yours? You see, how you answer that question, it's describing a trajectory that you're on right now. 
And the more my heart enlarges towards the things of God, the more I'm becoming that mature disciple that Jesus has always intended me to be. No matter how well-intentioned we are, it is never, ever okay to become a dragon in the church. Let's pray, and let's take this before the Lord. I've really appreciated this prayer recently. It's very simple. Clean out, O oh God, the inner stream of my life, all the duplicity, all the avarice or greed, all the falsity. Search out, O oh Lord, the hidden motives of my life, all the conceit, all the anger, all the fear. Root out, divine master, the destructive actions of my life, all the manipulation, all the scheming, all the guile. May the operations of faith, hope, and love increase in everything I am and in everything I do. Amen.